Last week we introduced the topic, tonight we're actually going to begin. If you want to know a little bit about the roadmap of where we're going, you can see it on the screen. Last week we introduced a little bit about it and heard some feedback from you. I got a number of cards, which I asked for, said, hey, if you'd like to me to address a topic or tell me where you'd like to go, an overwhelming number of you asked a similar question, which I hope we have time to address at the end of the series, and that is, a number of you asked, why did God pick Israel? Why them? I think that's probably a very Gentile question. You know, like, how come they get to be the chosen people? Maybe it's because some of you think that's not fair that anybody be chosen. We should all be equal. There should be no choosing of any kind. In which case, I'd refer you to the beginning of the book of Ephesians about God's calling and choosing, which troubles a lot of people when you read that in that context. So here we go. Tonight, we're going to start looking at some of the stranger laws in the Old Testament that we as Christians don't always know what to do with. Next week, we wade in a little bit deeper where we start to ask, what about all those laws that just deserve the death penalty? Like, seems like those are a little harsh. Then we wade in even deeper with questions about women, polygamy, slavery, patriarchy. Um, and finally, we get to the real deep end where we're toes are not touching the bottom anymore. And that is, we'll start talking about things like massacres and genocide, at least what it appears to us to be. Why is it that those things are commanded by the Lord, not just there descriptively, but seems like the Lord is commanding things. A couple of you have asked, and usually do, what resources are we reading for this series? Um, I've even got a rating system going this time. <laughs> There's actually a fourth book, which I'll mention later, but the three books that are in competition so far is God Behaving Badly by David T. Lamb. Uh, I gave this book two stars because if you just want the world to be okay and you don't want to deal with any of the issues, read his book. <laughs> the best way I can describe it is a kid just skipping stones across the surface of a very deep ocean. It kind of goes in about that deep. If you like pop cultural references to Seinfeld and to everything as an example outside the scriptures mostly from pop culture, this is the book for you. If you don't want to be disturbed at all, just want somebody to tell you, don't worry about it, just wave their hand over your like, these aren't the droids you're looking for. This is the book for you. Probably the best recommendation I have if you want to follow along is Paul Copen's book, Is God a Moral Monster? We relied on it last week and probably will be relying on it quite a bit. I think it's the best book on the topic. I would give it four and a half stars. I just don't know how to do half a star yet. I haven't figured that out. So any of you graphic artists who want to help me out, we could do four and a half. Um, it is very scholarly. Uh, my only critique of it would be sometimes it comes to too nice and neat of a conclusion. But the great thing about it is it covers a wide breadth of issues and is very educational uh, about a lot of topics in the, in the Old Testament, not just the difficult ones. Finally, there's Disturbingly Divine Behavior by Eric Siebert. I'd give this one three and a half stars if I could do half a star. Um, this is probably the most complex and difficult to get through book because it is disturbing. He does an excellent job of showing just how troublesome these passages are. The reason I don't go too far in, in praising it is because I think the resolution he'll come to, I will speak about at the end, but he basically says, there's no way we can resolve this. I think those people just didn't know what God was telling them. Now that's a very oversimplified version of what he's going to come to. But last week I said, I don't want to spend time just saying that the people heard wrong in the Old Testament or the scriptures were not accurately what God was saying, because I think that lets us off the hook too easily. Then we just, just close the series right now and say, okay, so they got it wrong, let's just close the series and be done. I think we should actually be shaken a little bit first. So if you want your faith shaken, read his book, it's really good. But I think his conclusion I'm not going to be too thrilled with, but we will cover it at the very end of the series. If you want to read along, that's what we're reading. Last week I told you why we're going to do a series like this. I really think a lot of Christians have questions about this. I think most of us have received really unsatisfactory answers. Uh, I don't want to just sit here and try to prove that God exists to you. That's not the purpose of the series. The purpose is actually I want to see us changed and learn to appreciate God and love God even more. And some of you may think that's hard to do when you're dealing with troublesome texts about God. But I think part of it is cleaning out some of the obstacles we have, but more importantly, there are things about God that maybe we just don't know because we just skip over these passages or are too troubled to read them. Here's another way I could tell you why this series might be important. Let me try it this way. 
different way than last week. Maybe if you listen to these questions, you might see, am I one of these people that has this question? Why would God prohibit Israel from wearing clothes made out of two different types of materials? Why would God prohibit Israel from planting two different types of seeds in the same field? I mean, what kind of law is that? Why would he go to the trouble of giving that as one of the laws they should follow? Why would God prohibit men from cutting their hair at the sides of their head or clipping off the edges of their beard? Why is that a law? Why are tattoo marks prohibited? Oh, and by the way, I should give the reference. The first one was Leviticus 19.19. The second one, Leviticus 19.27. The third one, tattoo marks, Leviticus 19.28. Maybe we should just take Leviticus 19 out of the Bible we've done with the series. Let's close it right now. Why are these things commanded? So if you don't have the answer, maybe this is one of the questions we have as Christians. What relevance do these laws have to Christians today? What relevance do they have now? Maybe you know people that pick and choose sometimes, or at least you think they're picking and choosing. Like you'll say, well, what support do you have for whatever you're saying? They'll say, it's right here in the Old Testament law. But it would seem that we would have to follow these too, or would we? If these laws don't apply to Christians, why do we even cite to the Old Testament at all? Does it even matter? Do we just say the law is kind of not applicable at all? So to put it in very concrete terms, could you answer some of these questions? Or maybe another way to say it is, have you ever wondered these questions? Especially the ones about, are they still applicable to me today? We're just going to start talking about these laws. Let's talk about why the law is given in the first place. A little bit of a progression about the law because it might help us understand some things that maybe we just don't see. First, the original intent was for us to live with God in the state he created us in, in the garden. So we're talking about a time before the fall. That's how we're supposed to do things. And there is no law. Not at this point, there's no need for it because we were supposed to live in harmony with God, we know that that ends very quickly. So at least let's remember that the first intent wasn't that there be the law. Second point, it's possible too to live harmoniously with God outside of the law because we see that he calls Abraham and all his descendants that are going to follow are going to bless many nations and salvation is going to come to all nations through Abraham, through his action of faith and trusting in God and doing what God wants. And Abraham, we find out, is actually declared righteous and there is no law. He does this before the law is given. And we have this interesting contrast that maybe you've never noticed. It seems that Abraham repeatedly passes certain tests of faith with God and later Moses seems to fail at a number of them. There's a contrast between them in some way. But Abraham does all of these before there is a law. And we know from both Genesis 15, 6, which says this, and also Romans that repeats it, and actually I think it's also repeated in Galatians, that Abraham is given his credit because of his faith. Yes? And then also the, the, the fact of Job, who was noted with affirmations that were even um, a better, uh, what's the word, like better adjective given even compared to Noah who was noted as blameless in his generation, and Job was referred to as, um, like when he was testing me. Um, and there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. Right. And many people believe Job being the earliest book written of all of the Old Testament scriptures that we have would date it probably, I, I think almost universally, before the law is given. So we have this evidence that God is dealing with people in a way, um, and you mentioned Noah, that's another example. God is dealing with people and finding people to be in relationships and even right relationships and to, uh, to credit to them righteousness through their faith. So we still don't have the law on the scene. And the reason I point that out is because somehow, maybe in our not putting the timeline in order, think somehow that the law was the way originally, and these two points kind of say not necessarily. Not until God chooses Israel as his nation uh, and then covenants with them after the exodus. Then that is going to happen. All right? So let's get to that point. When the law was given, my next point is the law was never intended to be permanent. 
And this is something we're going to come back to because that is the one that troubles most of us. It looked forward to its fulfillment. So it was already known that someday something better than this is going to come about. I'm referencing Jeremiah 31. Let me look at the passage specifically. This is the passage where it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the peoples of Israel and all the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. We've heard this verse a number of times, but maybe we've never heard it in the context of saying that this was saying something is coming that will be better than the covenant I originally made with your ancestors. And the key thing to note about this covenant is I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. It's not going to be a written down law. It's actually going to be one where it's placed in them. And that's going to sound a lot like the way that the Spirit indwells us. You're going to come back over and over to the Spirit. The Spirit's going to play a very key role in this. So even in the Scriptures, there was already the idea through, through the prophets that this was going to happen. You're going to see another one from Ezekiel in a moment. Here's another point. And this is the point I think that troubles us sometimes. When we look at the Old Testament and we see that, you know, it still seems like this law could have been a little better in some of the ways that it dealt with slaves, some of the ways it dealt with people's rights, some of the ways it dealt with women's rights. And so I've put up here on the screen that the law was a vast improvement over the laws that existed in the Near East at the time. The law was good, as Romans 7.12 says, but it was an incremental step towards the ideal. It was not the ideal. It was a step towards the ideal. And this becomes important for us as Christians to understand when we're struggling to say, should I live under that? One of the things we have to know is it had a purpose. And one of those purposes, not the only purpose, but one of those purposes was to move people incrementally forward. In other words, to say it nicely, it would have been a little bit too much all at once for people to live in the way that God really demanded because they really were stuck in that time, in that culture, and it was a gracious way to move them forward. I put down this. The law was merciful and practical because it did not impose on Israel an ideal it was not ready to accept, but gradually moved Israel towards the ideal. I cite Ezekiel 36, which says, Again, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my degrees and be careful to keep my laws. If you've tuned out, pay attention to this. One of the things that makes God unique in what he asks us to do when he asks us to obey him is he is the one that gives us the power to do it through the Spirit. He is not heaping on us all of the burdens of the law, all of the burdens even of the old law and even in the new covenant, all the things that Jesus commands without giving us his Spirit to do most of the work. And that is a key thing that sometimes we struggle with. Like, yes, I believe in grace and I believe in faith, but there's all this stuff about what I must do to obey. It is true that Jesus demands obedience and so does God throughout the scriptures. But God gives us his spirit to empower us to do those things. What we were not able to do, the spirit allows us to do. And we've talked about that in many examples through many series when we say, God, that's really hard to do. Yes, and God knows that. And God says, I will put my spirit in you. And I will move you to follow my decrees and to keep my laws. So I think that that should give us some help. All right. Let me give you an example of what I mean by the ideal. Because I've used the ideal a number of times. Let's take the treatment of slaves for a moment. 
And I want to trace it from the garden to the full restoration of all things in Christ. And just look at this issue of how it might be played out. Because some people, when they get to the scriptures, are troubled that in the Old Testament, the treatment of slaves is not the ideal that they would like to have. And we feel like somehow we're more enlightened than those people were. And even in the New Testament, we think, shouldn't Jesus have just said, hey, we're just abolishing slavery, let's just say it right now? Shouldn't Paul have said, instead of slaves and masters treat one another this way, shouldn't he have just said, there's no slavery? Like, why do we have to wait so long to get to those ideals? And one of the answers is, because we're waiting for a long time to see the restoration of all things. It's not happening all at once, all on earth. There is a part where the kingdom is yet to come. So look at this. In the garden, we're all created in God's image. Fast forward to the principles that were in existence in the Near East. How were slaves treated in the Near East? Uh, very brutally, very harsh. And the descriptions abound of the harshness with which slaves were treated. Here comes the law. The law softens some of those harsh treatments. The law limits punishments on slaves, actually gives refuge to runaway slaves in certain cases, begins to move us away from what's going on at the time. We're pushing people towards an ideal. In a society where slavery was as common as employment is in our society, where people think that there's no way you could run a society without, I mean, imagine if I just said tomorrow we're abolishing employment. There's no more employment. They think, how would anything run? This is the same thing that slavery was so much a part of the economic system, nobody could do it. That's true also in the New Testament. Even as Paul's writing in the New Testament, it's just part and parcel with the Roman Empire, but he's pushing us towards the ideal. Once again, the ideal is then treat one another with mutual submission. Masters show concern for the slaves. Slaves, you are part of the body of Christ. You are brothers and sisters with your masters. Treat one another in this way. I know, we still think that's goofy. They should just stop it right there. But there's a gradual progression until you get to the restoration of all things. When Christ says, now everything is restored to the way it was supposed to be. And we return to the ideal originally. Everyone's an image bearer of God. Everyone has equal dignity. All of our humanity is restored. None of us are the slave of the other. Do you see the progression? Anyone impatient want it just to happen now? You impatient? It seems like it would have been easy for God to just start out the law, like, hey, this is a better way to live, like this. I think even in our modern context of employment, we do have a lot of abuse happening. We have a lot of people who are underemployed and who are on the poverty line because of the unfair practices set up by corporate America and different things like that. So it seems like something that's set up already kind of not quite there can only kind of deplete until we get to this restoration. You want it sooner. Carissa? I was just kind of thinking um, how I agree it would have been awesome if God would have said, hey, no, from the beginning, here's the ideal and do it. But I'm also kind of thinking just uh, relating us and our parents and how growing up, like, my parents would say, hey, you need to do this, but I wouldn't want to obey them. I would want to do my own thing. And just seeing the comparison between, like, parent and child versus God and us and how we want to do things our own way and we have to learn the hard way. And the unfortunate thing is how we hurt people in the process, like how our sins contribute to societal sins. Okay, Joseph? I would agree in the same way, and there's plenty of things not related to slavery where Israel disobeyed God in that way, and eventually it ended up with them being exiled, and all these different things where they weren't right here. They, they just said, no, God, we're not doing it this way. So I think that that point is valid in a lot of ways when, when applied to slavery. Okay, Monique? Just kind of like as a little bit of a side note, like I've been going through the Old Testament a lot and what sort of comforts me is that I do see strong themes of where we want to be in the restoration still in the Old Testament where God's talking like to King David or to different people about like mercy and grace and humility and like 
all those key characteristics that would make us feel like we're equal, we shouldn't have slaves, we shouldn't treat people a certain way, like they're all there. Um, I would love if it came out right away and said, this is wrong, but here is a set of rules. But in a way, I do kind of see the law as a little bit graceful and merciful because even though the Bible might mirror history or like how society develops, it's just true that this is what was going on and maybe they weren't ready like to just abandon it. So at least God said, well, if this is going to exist, not that it's right, but here are some, some ways in which we can start to rectify a situation or work through these people or give some sort of framework, I guess, to, like you were saying, soften it. Okay, Heather? I think too it's important to point out that the spirit is working in Christians. A lot of Christians were at the forefront of abolishing slavery in America, in Britain. You know, and even today, there still is slavery. The secular culture may say that everyone deserves dignity, but there's still slavery all over the world. And there's more slaves today than there were 200 years ago. And that tells you something, that we're not to the restoration yet, that we're still working and we're still in progress. So you're right about pointing out that Christians were at the forefront of abolishing a lot of these things not just in the abolition of slavery. One of the interesting things that I was noting this week as I was reading through this is not Christian sociologists or anthropologists, but even ones that are strongly atheist do point out and actually give full credit to the fact that most of our notions of human rights and rights of equality come from the church and come from the Christian tradition. That even what we think of as enlightened Western ideas actually all trace back to the thought process that Christianity introduced. There's a couple articles that have come out recently that point to the fact that all of the secular liberalism about all of the rights that we need to have, the irony in that is that all of them are derived originally from Jesus and his ethic that he taught. And people who are very well versed in this will admit that and not try to quibble with it. The other point that Joseph made I think is very interesting. You know, if you think in the Old Testament, God did give them some laws that were fairly easy to understand. Like, I am the only God. And I'm going to prove it to you by doing a bunch of things. Like some plagues, like some parting of seas, like being a cloud that goes in front of you, like a pillar of fire. You were a people that had manna raining down from heaven on a daily basis so that you could eat. It should be fairly simple to remember a non-controversial law like, I'm the only God and you should only worship me. But we repeatedly see that they can't even get that one straight. Even that may have been too much. Even that one you find people repeatedly creating the golden calf, worshiping this, worshiping that, taking on the idols of conquered people. Even as the walls are coming down on the people they're conquering, they're like, let's get some of their idols and pray to them. <laughs> it's a little strange, and maybe it gives us a little insight that yeah, maybe, it is gracious to gradually move people in a certain direction. I know it's hard for us to hear that. I'm not even sure that I'm fully excited about it. I'd rather he just said it from the beginning, here are all the things I'm going to do. Let's get there sooner. But that's what the law is, an incremental step, a gracious step, a merciful step. But that's not all it is. I just want to point out that when we turn to the pages of the Old Testament, we find a standard that we think, you know, I don't like the way that women are treated here. I don't like the way the slaves are treated here. I don't like the way that this still seems like it's pandering a little bit to the patriarchal culture of the Near East. I want you to remember that it wasn't meant to be permanent. It was an incremental step. It was gracious and merciful to move people towards the ideal, not all at once. And they couldn't even handle the simple ones. That's one way of looking at the law. Here's another. There are other purposes of the law that we wonder about. Most of us, by the way, go to the very bottom of the screen. When I ask things like, why can't you eat shrimp? What's wrong with shrimp? Who doesn't like shrimp? Why does God say no shrimp? Right? Some people go to the very bottom of the screen and go, it's because health reasons. God was concerned about cholesterol. No. That's probably not it. Remember, at one point, humans were all commanded by God to be vegetarians. It wasn't until after the flood that he allows us to eat meat. So he could have just said, if I'm worried about cholesterol, we would have just all stayed there. So that 
isn't probably the only reason that the law existed. Some people have tried to say like God in his you know, infinite wisdom was giving them kind of all this medical advice in the law. No. Or some people have said it's just to avoid Canaanite practices, which may be true sometimes. Like maybe wearing different cloth was because there were certain magic practices that people did to worship their gods or there were certain ways that it was superstitious like planting two types of seed may be a way of mixing things for superstitious reasons, but that can't explain the law either fully. Some people would say that it was just to show the religious difference, but if that were the case, as one author points out, then God would have banned sacrificing bulls because all of the people in the Near East use bulls in their religious practices. But that's actually one of the prime ways that you honor God is by sacrificing a bull. All of the people in the Near East stayed away from pigs. So it wasn't just because it was ritually or religiously unclean. There were, must be other reasons. So I've listed a couple of them on the screen. The first one that I think is somewhat convincing is it's a standard of holiness. And by holiness, I mean something specific. Being set apart. It's a standard of set-apartness. God makes a covenant with the people of Israel. They are his he, you heard in the early verse, he's saying, because I was a husband to them. He's using very intimate language to describe the people he's chosen. And we may address why he chose a people. We'll address that later. But he did choose a people. And God is very intimately involved with them. But he wants them to be holy the way he is holy. He wants them to be set apart. One way of understanding the law is it is as simple in some ways as I want you to be distinct. I want you to be different. I want there to be a visible way for people to see that you belong to me. I don't want to make it this arbitrary, but I was saying to Jolene last week, for example, if God had said in the law, you're all to wear purple armbands, it's not because that was a health thing. But it might be because he wanted everyone to know those are my people and to see who his people were. It's not the only reason, but that's an important reason that we sometimes miss when we look at something and go, that's strange. Why would he command that? Another reason is integration. I've called it integration because we have a hard time doing it. It's a constant reminder. These laws affected every part of your life. There wasn't any way where you could say, I'm just going to keep these laws on Sunday or on Saturday. I'm just going to keep these laws when it's time for a religious feast. These laws affected the way you lived your life every minute. You had to be asking, like, can I do this? What happens when this happens? There's a rule for this. There's a law for this. And all of them were meant to cover all of your life so that you couldn't live your life the way some of us can today, where we have the sacred and we have the secular. Or we just separate where we go, there's times when I'm in God's presence and I'll act this way or do these things or think this stuff. And then there's times when I'm just going to work. It's not like I'm out there, you know, doing crazy things. I'm just going to work. And in those times, I just have a different set of laws or a different set of things I'm thinking about. God's law invaded every part of life. Why? He was their God. They were his people. This was not just a relationship of convenience. It was intimate. He was literally in their presence constantly. The third one I'm going to recommend to you is more ritualistic. If you look at the law, it separates life from death, clean from unclean, pure from blemished, and it constantly relates back symbolically to God. Here's where I'm going to tell you to read chapter 7 and 8 of Paul Copen's book because I'm not going to go into all of it. Here's what I will tell you in summary. After reading those chapters, I can see that a lot of Old Testament scholars can start to trace why God would say, I'm not going to let you cook a goat in its mother's milk. They can trace back why God might have said that during your menstrual cycle, you have to be ritualistically clean afterwards and you have to leave the camp during that time. That why certain male discharges were prohibited in the law. Why did God go to that level of detail? I will tell you that there are reasons that are expressed and there have to do with the symbolisms that come with them about life and death, about the creation, about how God intended things to be. And yes, at times they're just meant to show 
and be symbolic reminders of these things of clean and unclean, life and death, and how God is trying to show them to keep them separate and respect them for what they are. For example, cooking a goat in its mother's milk might have been prohibited because the milk represents life while the cooking represents the death of that animal. And mixing those two things together was something that God wanted them to keep separate in their minds and also to keep separate because of who he was. And you could go down a long list of the laws and understand them in that way, and you'll be very happy to know I'm not going to do that. (laughs) I'm just going to tell you that it's not that God was arbitrary in picking how his people were to be holy in how they were to be set apart. He could have said wear purple armbands. But instead, he used symbols that were deeply meaningful. And the law is based in large part about those. And all I would say is, you can either trust me, which most of you are like, yeah, whatever, if I don't have to read anything, good. Or if you want to know more about this, because you want to know where did God get some of the bases (laughs) for some of these things, not that God has to justify himself to us, but there are actual reasons, and you, I'll point you to some of them, so you can read and say, oh, that's very interesting. Uh, it explains why maybe shrimp is not allowed. Right? It actually talks about the distinctions between certain animals and certain things that crawl on the ground and why God would even care about the difference. I'll leave it at that. So to sum up, there are other purposes of the law other than just being an incremental step to move people forward. It had these purposes for Israel. So now I guess the real question that you're wanting to know today in the 21st century is this one. So does it apply to us? Can we eat shrimp? Can we do that? All things are permissible. <laughs> and you're citing from? Paul. Paul, right, Paul. Because it's, you know, since he wrote most of the New Testament, just saying <laughs> Paul probably, yeah. Yes? Um, Peter's vision that he had uh, concerning the Macedonian, uh, when he had the vision of basically the, the platform from heaven that dropped with all the things that they were prohibited from eating, and he was just like, God, what do you want me to eat? This is not allowed. And he was just like, do not call what is clean unclean. Okay. Let's go straight to where both of your comments are. We're going to head to those two verses, but we're going to take a little bit of a pit stop along the way. Does the law apply to us? I want to start by saying... Yes. Here's what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Elsewhere, Jesus, as you know, very shortly after this, in the next verse, is like, not one stroke of the law will pass away. We're going to get to that in a moment, so keep that in mind. So you would say from that, sounds like the law is still in effect. Here's another verse. Does the law still apply? Maybe. Matthew 5.20, just a few verses later, he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, look, we all make cartoon characters out of the Pharisees, but one thing they did do is keep the law very strictly and very well. They did that right. So what is this all about when he says your righteousness has to exceed theirs? Like, wait a minute. That sounds like something more is required than just keeping the law. In fact, it's saying keeping the law, which is what the Pharisees are known for, is not enough. So maybe it applies, maybe it doesn't. Here's our favorite Exodus answer. The classic Exodus answer is no and yes, right? The, uh, <laughs> Luke 16, 16 and 17. Jesus says, Until John the Baptist, the law and the messages of the prophets were your guides. But now, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone is eager to get in. So that sounds like until John the Baptist, the law was applicable. But now it's not applicable. So that's the no part. But here's the part where it sounds like a yes. But that doesn't mean that the law has lost its force. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the smallest point of God's law to be overturned. Just make up your mind. And it seems like the jury's still out. One more. Does the law still apply? Just so we get all the possible answers on the screen. No. 
This is from Romans 8, 1 through 3. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the laws of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. I know it's hard to track what Paul says because it just sounds all so theological. Let me try to use a little highlighting to help us. There is no condemnation. Why? Because through Jesus... The law of the Spirit, which is the law of the good news, the law of grace, the Spirit who is in our hearts. Remember, he's going to write it on our hearts. That someday the new covenant I make with you is to write it on your hearts and in your minds. That that law, the law of the Spirit, the law of freedom that we're given to have Christ and his reign in our lives, have the Spirit directly in our hearts, that law that gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. And most people agree that he's not just referring to sin. He's contrasting the new covenant with the old covenant. The law of sin and death is the law of the Old Testament that led to death because no one could live up to it. Yes? I feel like some might say that just because we can't, follow everything doesn't mean we shouldn't try but then I also see that maybe the focus is a shift where when Christ came to fulfill the law and be the law and do it for us maybe our our focus should be on him as opposed to the law like on the savior on the messiah and like puts us into more of a position of humility that God does it for us and it's grace and to put our like our view on Christ but the argument is still there. Like, shouldn't we still try? So I'll respond to that with my view. And this is the reason why I said what the purpose of the law was. Incrementally move you forward towards the ideal, but not the ideal. Set you apart so that everyone would identify who you are. Here's my issue with it. I'm not going to take a dogmatic view that if you follow the law today, uh, that you're automatically disqualified from something. I'm not taking that position. But here's what you have to ask when you decide to do that. The law was meant to identify Israel with God. Today, our identity is in Christ. Our whole study on the book of Ephesians was that you are in Christ. Your identity is because of Christ. Everything about you is identified with something new. You are a new creation and you are the body of Christ with him as our head. And that should be our sole identification. That's the issue that you have to struggle against don't run the risk of making something your idol or like making a way of life or a law your idol where Christ should be identification. Right. You want to know that I am identified with Christ. And so even though the law was a form of identifying with God, there is a new identification, which is one, you have the identification with God himself, with him as your head in the body of Christ, incarnate, and also spiritually, and also the, we have access to the Holy Spirit directly, who Jesus now sends in the world. It, things have changed. And let me show you how things have changed, because both of you brought up verses that show that after Jesus is resurrected and after Pentecost, things change. Here's some examples. In Acts 10, here comes the sheet from the sky that has all the things on it, some of which Peter is not supposed to eat. And in the vision that he has, it says... Eat, go ahead, kill and eat. And Peter's response is, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made. Well, that's either a complete contradiction of the Old Testament or something has changed. Acts 15, I'm citing verses 1, 6, and 10 and 11. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. The apostles and elders met to consider the question. After much discussion or deliberation, which is what Exodus is all doing, Peter got up and addressed them. Notice what he says. Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke 
that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. Like, we couldn't do this. Why are we going to ask them to do it? And then he says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ we are saved just as they are. On the basis of this deliberation and Peter's speech, the church concludes, no, they do not have to be circumcised. They do not have to follow all of those things under the law. Something has changed. Otherwise, we'd have a double-minded God. In 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and verses 3 through 5, this is the one that I think Heather was referencing. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon their faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. They order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Key part, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Something seems to have changed. Jolene, you want to come back? Yeah, um, I want to go back to Acts 10, 14 through 15. Everyone, I, I, I feel like, uses that verse in reference to, uh, to God saying that it's okay to eat things that, that, that are unclean. <coughs> it, I, I thought that, from my, what I understood of it, was that God was showing him a vision in reference to the three Gentiles. You know, because in, in his tradition, you know, the Jews don't eat with the Gentiles. You don't, you don't associate with them. You don't sit and eat with them. And God was saying he's using the, the, the pig and whatever, these images, as the Gentiles, saying, don't do that. Partake of them. Let them in. Bring them into your table. I think he was using it metaphorically, not necessarily in, uh, now you can go eat pork. You know? If you read what Peter says later, he says, I had this vision, and this was the vision that allowed me to enter your home. So some people in response to that verse will say, he's not talking about food. He's talking about the ritual uncleanness that would happen if a Jew were to enter a Gentile's home. Okay, but that doesn't solve the problem. It still is something that is not allowed that is now allowed. And by the way, I wouldn't say it's correct to say that you ignore the metaphor and what it's saying in order to reach the right conclusion. I do agree with you that in the vision there is a metaphor. And it's given to allow him to enter the house of the Gentile and Peter realizes to take the gospel to the Gentiles as a result. I agree that that's the exact context of what's happening. What I don't agree on is number one, that that's any less problematic that he enter his house because that wouldn't have been allowed. And secondly, I don't think that when we see parables and metaphors in scripture, we could just go, well, that's just a metaphor or a parable. Like, why did God pick that? Because it was something for him to relate to in that the Gentiles were viewed as unclean things exactly like the way the pigs were. But I mean, later on in that, you see Paul sitting down and eating pig with them? I mean, no, but you see, them, you see him accepting the Gentile in. But if the act of accepting the Gentile in is contrary to the law as he knew it, then the point is the same. He's actually saying to him, in the language itself, do not call anything impure that God has made. That's not a metaphor. That's the voice speaking in the vision. And the same thing is true down here. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. That's not a metaphor. That's actually the words of scripture. Right? So I agree that the metaphor had a purpose, but we can't just throw out the metaphor, especially when it's supported by these other words. Heather. I think also Acts 15 kind of basically specifically says don't, Gentiles do not have to have a law. Like it basically says don't force that upon them. They eat shrimp, let them eat shrimp. You know, if they're not circumcised, don't make them be circumcised. And so I think that that's super important to point out is that, like, either way, like, God is saying you're not to, to impose this. But I think the bigger picture is that it's like Jesus not abolishing the law but fulfilling it. He actually creates a higher law and says that you are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And I think a lot of the scriptures relate to the loving your neighbor part, you know, because he doesn't. Because we can say that, he, that you know, like the law is fulfilled and so we don't need specifics on each thing. But murder still, I think it's still not okay. You know, raping someone is still not okay. Uh, adultery is still not okay. Like those are things that were also in the law. And so I, I think that it, it goes back to the higher standard of like Jesus set a new law. Yes, you're right. Jesus' fulfillment of the law does elevate in some cases in the Sermon on the Mount. Like you've heard it said this, but now I say to you, go even further. Like to hear. True. And those are the places where that's why we can say, no, murder is not okay. He expressly taught on it, but even if he didn't, the same principle applies throughout. Like, that's not changing. 
Uh, but you have to look at how he treats them and takes them, and we should never fall into the trap that that higher standard is what Christians must do for righteousness as opposed to this is the standard as it should be. You can see this gradual unfolding. You've heard it said. Now I tell you the real ideal. And you're like, there's no way we could have done the old one, let alone the new one. He's like, believe in me. That's why I'm fulfilling it. Yes. You quoted earlier from Matthew where Jesus says, I do not think I've come to abolish the law of prophets. And then you said that this word fulfill, and maybe it doesn't refer to practicing it now, but that Jesus fulfilled the law on the, on the cross and in his life. But then after that verse, he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Right. Notice both of them go to the kingdom of heaven, by the way, which is a very important thing, because it means that his righteousness is what really matters. I have to address that verse, and I will starting next week, because the question that comes down is, is he talking about your requirement to do them? Some people, some people interpret that Jesus' fulfillment means that he takes on the burden of the law itself. That's why the law is not abolished, because someone has to fulfill it. He does it for us. The passages in the New Testament that come after Jesus' resurrection seem to go to it doesn't apply. The key is still fulfillment. But I agree with you that, that that statement is very troubling. It's troubling especially to people who want a gospel of grace. Jill. I feel like we have to at least kind of mention where homosexuality fits in here because that is talked about in Leviticus. And if we're doing away with, oh, you know, God didn't really mean you should wear two types of clothing, I think we have to, we have to talk about this and why it's okay to vilify homosexual people, but it's... It's okay to dismiss other things. Okay, here's the two-minute answer. One-minute answer. 30-second answer. 30-second answer. I've already wasted most of it just giving you the time. We're not to vilify. I don't think we're to vilify anybody. All right? So let's, that's off the table. There is an interesting perspective that is repeated by many, many scholars. That there does seem to be a transition, an incremental improvement in the laws about the treatment of women and the treatment of slaves. There's a guy who's written a whole book on this, tracing all the laws and how they increase over time. However, in this book, and many scholars agree, the one thing that remains condemned as a sin, not condemn the person or vilify the person, but the treatment of homosexuality does not change from Old Testament to New Testament. So I could say it simply, the New Testament actually repeats some of the same things in the Old Testament. It's not a matter of taking Leviticus apart. It's a matter actually of just dealing with what the New Testament says. Where are you finding the New Testament? Yeah, I mean, the one we looked at during our Ephesians series was not in Ephesians, and I can't remember where it is, but I mean, at one point, Paul, in one of his letters, starts making a list of all the people who do not inherit the kingdom of God, and one of them was men who have sex with men. It's just in the middle of it. So we don't need to go back to the Old Testament to talk about the very similar standard. It's just there. So we could tear apart what Paul's theology is, why is he saying that, but what I'm saying is it's not an Old Testament problem. It remains the same in the New Testament we inherit it. And we have said this before in this series, that uh, being an unrepentant heterosexual who does whatever you want, to me, is the same thing. So I'm not trying to point out this one sin. In fact, I want to be clear. It's in a midst of a list of lots of other sins, and we had to struggle, and I'm not going to do it now, with what does it mean to not inherit the kingdom of God because you've committed one of these sins when all of us have. And we said it's not a list of like, oh, you commit the sin and you're out. It really is much deeper than that, but that's not the series we're in. I'm just saying that it's, it remains a problem because of that. There's no increased revelation on that. It just stays the same. Yes. Um, I feel like it's kind of that tension we've always talked about in like a lot of our series, and this isn't to give an answer that we're not supposed to follow it or follow it or whatever, but holding that high standard is a reminder to me that like we can't keep it, and it kind of does point to grace. And then also, since nothing is arbitrary, and we're talking about the Old Testament and you know cooking a goat and its mother's milk and, and life and death and, and all the symbolism that had, I find that in the new covenant, if that's what you want to call it, in Matthew, there's the same type of symbolism. And when we were reading about, you know, with the different types of meat, and I don't think it's just about entering that home for those three specific Gentiles. It's not just about breaking that law. What I see all over that 
is extending salvation to everybody and saying that this no longer just belongs to the Jews, but everyone can have salvation through Christ. And so maybe by saying that things are no longer unclean to eat, it's a new type of representation where God's saying, you did this to show this, and I wanted you to remember this. Now we're going to do this to represent this. You can eat things. Everything, you know, can be considered clean because now everybody can have, like, salvation through Christ. So, like, I don't think it's arbitrary. I think there's a purpose to why there was law and then not law and certain things that we keep in, and, um, and don't keep. Okay, let me close it this way because that's a very good place to leave it. The verse that you're going to is where we start next week. And the reason I don't want to get into it is because here's the question we have to address. In Numbers, there's a guy who's collecting sticks on the Sabbath for firewood. He's violating the Sabbath. They bring him forward and Moses, Aaron, asked the Lord, what are we supposed to do with this guy? We know kind of what you said, but what are we supposed to do? And he says, what? He should be put to death. He should be stoned. This is why next week we start to deal with some of the harsher penalties for doing some of this stuff, where the penalty is death. And the question that should be bothering you not is, why is God killing someone for collecting sticks on the Sabbath? That should bother you. But the other one should be, if it's true at Yoshi said that we should understand Jesus' next command in Matthew to not relax any of those commandments, why are you here on the Sabbath? What are you doing here? Um, are we going to stone each other after this is done? And we got a lot of things going on that we don't do. When, we, when someone says you should keep the Sabbath because it's kind of good for your health, that's not what God was talking about, although it was intended to give us rest. Like, why was he doing that? And how does it relate to us today again? Because there are a couple verses that still seem to trouble us. And those verses come from the big J. You know, they're not from Paul. They come from Jesus. And so we have to kind of deal with that issue about whether stick gatherers should be stoned. Let me pray and close up there. Lord, I'm thankful for your gospel of grace. And I'm also mindful for the standards that you set for your disciples to follow. Spirit, dwell in this place. Thank you that you are in our discussions. You are in our questions. You are in our wrestling. You are in our deliberation. And Spirit, thank you that you are in our hearts, that you promise, Lord, that you are the one who's going to help us to keep your law. We can't do it without you. You knew that. And that's why you sent us the counselor, the Holy One, to reside in us, to give us the power to be your church, to give us the power to obey, to give us the power to do the things that change the world from the time that you came. But Lord, we still have questions. And we still want to honor you with the way that we understand you and your character. Spirit, be our guide. Spirit, be the one that teaches in this room. Pray this in your name. Amen.